Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, January the 23rd, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here is our first story. It's entitled, The Man Behind the Museum, Adventurous Life Led to Vast Collection, His Last Name on Building. It's written by Melody Parker of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. The dateline is Waterloo. Henry W. Grout's biography sometimes reads like a movie plot. His legacy is the Grout Museum of History and Science in downtown, although his life story reveals an adventurous past behind his last name on a building. When he died in 1932, Henry Grout was described as heroic and fearless. I thought it sounded like the sort of things that people say when they're eulogizing someone, said Nicholas Erickson, Grout Museum District Registrar. But it wasn't hyperbole. It turns out he really was those things. He was a railroad worker and a lead miner in Colorado where he was shot at during a miner's strike and he spent a dozen years as a traveling sewing machine salesman in the Dakota Territory all before he was the age of 30. Grout was one of Waterloo's earliest movers and shakers. Born in 1858 on an East Waterloo Township farm, he became a successful businessman, real estate agent, financier, philanthropist, and state legislator. He was an original shareholder in Rath Packing Company founded by his friend John W. Rath and the Rath family in 1891. Grout was also an avid collector and world traveler who loved sharing his finds with the community. He was particularly interested in prehistoric and Paleo-Indian artifacts, rocks and minerals, plant and animal fossils, international curios, and objects from the American West. He loved Iowa and the history of Black Hawk County. He probably started collecting rocks and fossils on the family farm as a child, and his interest grew from there, Erickson said. Grout originally displayed his collection in his Logan Avenue home, then at the Black Hawk County Courthouse. His artifacts number between 2,000 and 4,000 and laid the original foundation for the current museum. At the time of his death, Grout had amassed what was considered the largest individual collection in Iowa. In 1934, trustees relocated the collection to the new YMCA building on Cedar Street. Grout had made a substantial gift toward the cost of the building, and the Henry W. Grout Historical Museum opened on the second floor 90 years ago. A commission ran the museum from 1934 to 1955. The current Grout Museum building at 503 South Street was built solely from funds provided by the Henry Grout Foundation. At its dedication on August 30, 1956, one speaker noted that it was the culmination of Grout's dream. The collection is well documented, for the most part, including photographs published in The Courier in the early 1930s, Erickson explained, but it's hard to get a fix on the exact number of artifacts. At times, it can be hard to find the edges of the collection. Most artifacts have seldom been on exhibit. One of Grout's greatest adventures was born out of tragedy. His older brother, Warren, had gone to California in 1878 to make his fortune. Then he bought a cattle ranch near Tombstone in Cochise County, Arizona in, 19, in 1881. This was the town where Wyatt Earp, his brothers Virgil and Morgan, and Doc Holliday killed three members of the Clanton McLaurie gang in the legendary October 26, 1881 gunfight at the OK Corral. 
Warren Grout was robbed and shot dead in his cabin by outlaws two years later. His body was found on September the 13th, 1883. Henry Grout traveled to Tombstone in late September to settle his brother's affairs, sell the ranch, and bring his body home. Henry proved his courage by what happened next, Erickson said. When he got to Tombstone, he was determined to track down his brother's killers. No one wanted to help him, so he did it on his own. Grout wrote a first-hand account of his quest for justice. Armed, he rode up into the mountains on horseback on the trail of the killers. He found some trouble along the way, but finally identified his brother's murderers. He couldn't convince Tombstone's lawmen to act. There was a lot of upheaval in town with all the outlaws. This was still the Wild West. Grout was forced to exhume his brother's body himself and sent him home on the train in a sealed lead casket. In 1887, Grout received word from an Arizona lawman that one of Warren's killers had been arrested and sent to prison. That document also is part of the museum's collection. Warren Grout's saddle is on display, along with Henry Grout's 25 caliber percussion muzzle loader, half-stock Kentucky rifle, made in Ohio around 1850 in the museum's Pioneer Hall. Another prized artifact is the broad axe that belonged to the area's first permanent settlers, George and Mary Hanna, used in 1845 to build their first cabin. It was the first example of European construction in Blackhawk County. The axe had survived two fires before it was given to grout by Waterloo Courier owner John C. Hartman, who received it in Mary Hanna's will at her death in 1912. A Courier article proved it was given to Grout in 1929. A tomahawk is cataloged as recovered in 1900 at the site of the Bad Axe Massacre in Wisconsin. On August the 1st, 1832, Black Hawk and about 500 of his followers were fired upon while attempting to surrender to a U.S. Army gunboat on the banks of the Mississippi River. Black Hawk was one of the few survivors and surrendered in Prayer Duchesne on August 27th. 1832. Grout collected numerous firearms, such as an 1855 Springfield M1855 pistol, carbine, the U.S. Army's last single-shot muzzle-loading pistol, a flintlock musket, an 1850 shotgun made in Birmingham, England, and a pepper-box pistol. A mid-to-late-19th-century bow is possibly Dakota Sioux, as well as a pair of moccasins. A woman's buckskin, beaded, and fringed dress is documented as dating to 1820 for the Umatia Nation. Although items are documented, it is unclear how some pieces were acquired and whether they were purchased at trading posts, for example. Some objects, such as an Egyptian statue, circa 1900, were meant for tourist trade, Erickson noted. Carefully stored in acid-free paper are a mammoth tooth and tusk from the Pleistocene Epoch, 2.58 million to 11,700 years ago. There are sites of origin unknown. There's also a stone donut, a Paleo-Indian, 14,000 to 12,000 years ago, Taurus ring made of stone, although many have been found Modern anthropologists have been unable to determine their use or function. 
early dentation for a drum says Utah Indian with a later doubtful authenticity notation. There is a very faint inscription written in pencil on the side of the drum that I believe reads Cliff Dwellers, Manitou, Colorado, September 4th, 1910, or maybe 1915. I'm not sure, Erickson said. The Manitou Cliff Dwellings is a replica Pueblo Village Preserve and Museum in Colorado open to the public in about 1907. We know his first wife died while they were in Colorado in 1910, so I'm thinking he probably just bought the drum in the gift shop. Grout loved to share his knowledge of history at civic club meetings. In fact, he died June 28, 1932 in the midst of a noon luncheon lecture for the Optimist Club at the Hotel President. His second wife, Agnes, was present. He was age 74. Henry Grout was a fearless man. He never started trouble and he never dodged. His honesty was unquestioned, said Dr. Edward Peake, a lifelong friend in a Courier newspaper article. Other friends described Grout as a man of industry, courage, truth, and kindness, and a man who had faith in the virtue of hard. The other article on the front page of the Courier today is entitled, New Group Formed to Preserve Endangered Sturgis Falls Events. It's written by Andy Malone of the Courier. The dateline is Cedar Falls. The Sturgis Falls Celebration Weekend reboot is underway. Pete Downs, former board vice president, and 10 other former board members have formed the Sturgis Falls Overman Entertainment Committee and are working hard to organize the Overman Park Activities Parade, Kidsway, and Arts and Crafts Festival for 2024. It's still fresh and very fluid right now. It is a bit of organized chaos, said Downs, but we knew we had to do something and knew we couldn't let the community down. Sturgis is one piece of small-town Americana. People were worried the events might not happen after being placed on hold this fall by Jay Stoddard, board president of Sturgis Falls Celebration, Inc., the nonprofit responsible for organizing the largest admission-free annual city celebration in the state. A member of the board since 1985, Stoddard, age 78, contended the organization was in trouble financially and had the funds to cover only the Gateway Park portion of the event. He lost almost the entire board, including Downs, to frustrations largely having to do with an alleged lack of financial transparency. The Overman Entertainment Committee members include Downs, Chuck Frost, Jill Kennedy, Mary Sue Bartlett, Rose Miller, Linda Kennedy, Mark Lyman, Don Sweeney, Laura Sweeney, Molly Kaler, and Dalton Blackford. Many are among the recent 2023 board members to resign on October the 1st. We decided to step back. We decided a step back was the best step forward, Downs added. They expect to get a sublease of sorts from Stoddard, who's aware of the new group, for the contract giving the nonprofit access to the city parks and services for the events that last weekend in June. The overall progress stemmed from conversations with other community leaders, including Mayor Danny Lodick and former Mayor Jim Brown, executive director of the Cedar Falls Economic Development Corporation. Downs is now the board president of the recently formed nonprofit Sturgis Falls Entertainment Group, Incorporated, acting as an umbrella organization for all events that weekend, like Cedar Basin Music Festival and events at the River Place Plaza. 
The nonprofit will ideally be made up of different cities with chairs who would serve on the Sturgis Falls Entertainment Group Board. We are proceeding full steam ahead in 2024 without interruption like it's any one of the last 45 years, said Bob Seymour, a music festival board member and now board vice president of Sturgis Falls Entertainment Group. We're coming together to see if we can cooperate, share costs with each other, share volunteers, bands, and security, insurance costs, and see if there are other ways we can be more efficient. Downs welcomes Stoddard and Sturgis Falls Celebration, Inc., and hopes they will have a committee. The old regime plans to operate the Gateway Park concerts, carnival, and festivities on the other side of the Cedar River, opposite downtown. The reason for the umbrella structure is we want to help out all activities, said Downs. We want to ensure the integrity of Sturgis remains intact and ensure everyone is on the same page with expectations. It gets us all together. That was part of the problem in the past. Contact Downs at PeteD at WaterlooTent.com with questions or interests in sponsoring or volunteering. He will put people in contact with the appropriate event director. In a related story, Sturgis Board President's wife sues for unpaid loan. This is also written by Andy Malone. The wife of longtime Sturgis Falls Celebration Inc. Board President has filed a suit against the nonprofit for failure to pay back $25,000 she loaned to the organization in 2015. Deborah Stoddard's husband, Jay, says the breach of contract suit filed December the 7th in district court is necessary to get a judgment for a lien on its 421 Grant Street property where the Gateway Park event stage sits and ensure she gets paid after having waited nine years for the principal and interest. The loan came with an interest rate of 2.59% per annum and a due date of October 11th, 2016. We don't have the money, said Stoddard, when asked why she's not waiting for the organization to become solvent. This is just like a contractor who does work on a house, he emphasized repeatedly. Deborah Stoddard's attorney, Austin McMahon, declined comment on the pending litigation Thursday. She is an active board member, her husband said, and the couple are on good terms. I sleep next to her every night, he said. Pete Downs, former board vice president, said he'd not been aware of the loan from October the 12th to 2015 until the suit became public. Stoddard denies that the funds were borrowed in secret, acknowledging records of the installment promissory note. There was never any vote by the board on the loan. There was no knowledge of any loan to Sturgis Falls Celebration, and I could go as far as the $100,000 loan from the city, said Downs. We had been initially unaware of that. Stoddard said the organization borrowed the $25,000 to help pay for the $100,000 city loan, initially agreed to be paid back in $25,000 installments over four years. Cedar Falls Finance and Business Operations Director Jennifer Rodenbeck previously confirmed all obligations were paid off. There may be other instances of companies and people not being paid what they're owed, that includes Downs himself, who said his company, Waterloo Tent and Tarp Company, Incorporated, was not paid back $60,000 for the Kidsway tent his company constructed in 2019. Downs is considering legal action. Stoddard said the debt is recorded and has not been paid back. He noted there being other outstanding expenses related to Overman Park events. 
Downs confirmed concerns about financial transparency, as had been alleged by a half-dozen former board members who spoke to the Courier in the fall. That was one reason a majority of the 2023 board suddenly resigned. Stoddard chalked it up to grudges held by certain people. There's nothing out of the ordinary happening, Stoddard said. No legal action had been taken related to Sturgis finances. The December 7th breach of contract suit is believed to be the first. Downs is leading a new committee of 11 former board members in organizing Sturgis Falls events at Overman Park, as well as the Parade, Kids Way, and Arts and Craft Festival in 2024 and beyond. Stoddard had announced those events were not scheduled because of financial troubles. Next up, Boat RV Vacation Show starts Friday at Unidome. Iowa's Boat, RV, and Vacation Show returns to the Unidome at the University of Northern Iowa with all things outdoors this weekend. Hours are 3 to 7 p.m. Friday, 10 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Saturday, and 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Sunday. It is the area's largest indoor display of boats, RVs, and all-terrain vehicles. In addition, vacation options for outdoor exploration, the latest trends, seminars, industry experts, and more will be at the show. On Saturday, the first 50 kids will receive a free fishing pole. Professional angler Ted Takasaki and local fishing expert Steve Miller will host seminars and share tips, tricks, and techniques. Friday's seminars begin at 4 p.m. with Takasaki discussing Lake of the Woods walleye tactics and trolling with bottom bouncers. Miller's seminars begin at uh, 5 p.m. and include what to look for when water is low and fishing the Wapsie Cedar Shell Rock Turkey. A kids' seminar is planned at 10.30 a.m. Saturday. Takasaki's seminars are at 11 and 11.30 a.m. and 1, 1.30, 4.30, and 5 p.m. Saturday, with Miller's programs at noon and 12.30, 3.30, and 4 p.m. On Sunday, Takasaki will present seminars at 10.30 and 11 a.m., and Miller's presentations are at noon and 12.30 p.m. The public can ask the pro with Miller and Takasaki at 6.30 p.m. Friday, 1.30 at 2 and 5.30 p.m. Saturday, and 11.30 a.m. on Sunday. Attendees will have a chance to win a Yeti TM door prize. Discounted advanced tickets are available for $7 at www.iowasportsshows.com or at the door for $10. The show is sponsored by Ford Motor Company. One charged in ATM skimming case. This comes to us from Jeff Reinitz. One person has been charged after bank officials found a skimming device at a Cedar Falls ATM in November. Police arrested 37-year-old Vasily Criste, address unavailable, Friday on one count each of illegal use of a scanning device and malicious prosecution. Bond was set at $15,000. According to court records, the manager at Collins Community Credit Union on Winterberry Drive called police after noticing a person placing a skimming device on the drive-up ATM on November the 16th. The suspect also placed a small camera on the awning over the ATM. Skimmers are designed to record information from a credit card or bank's card's magnetic strip. Thieves place the electronic devices over card slots at ATMs. After unsuspecting people use the ATMs, the culprit return 
culprits return and download the data, which can be used to create duplicate cards. The small cameras are used to record people entering their PIN numbers. Other skimmers were found at banks and credit unions in North Liberty, Des Moines, and West Des Moines. North Liberty officers detained Christay and another person when they returned to collect the device, court records state. Cedar Falls investigators identified Chris Day from the Collins Community Credit Union surveillance camera records state. Chris Day allegedly gave North Liberty officers Ukrainian documents identifying himself as Alexia Sovanova and was charged under that name until his true identity was discovered. And man allegedly rams car with stolen truck, also written by Jeff Reinitz. A Waterloo man has been arrested for allegedly using a stolen truck to ram another vehicle over the weekend. Police arrested Nathaniel Wayne Cummings, age 38, on Saturday for three counts of assault with a weapon, leaving the scene of an accident, operating without owner's consent and second-degree criminal mischief. Authorities allege Cummings took his mother's Chevrolet Silverado pickup and shortly before 9 a.m. Saturday rammed a Ford Fiesta carrying his ex-girlfriend and two other people while it was stopped at a red light. Court records allege he hit the Fiesta from behind and pushed it into the intersection at West 4th and Bayard Street where it was struck by another vehicle. Officers later found Cummings at the Isle Casino Hotel but were unable to find the pickup truck, records state. Alleged shooter charged with December robbery. Police have arrested a third person for a December robbery and shooting that critically injured a Waterloo man. Dejonis Dupree Mormon Jenkins, age 22, of 610 Sumner Street, was arrested Thursday night on charges of first-degree robbery, first-degree burglary, and willful injury causing serious injury. Bond was set at $100,000. Court records allege Mormon Jenkins is the person who shot Richard Sturdivant multiple times on Glenwood Street. Sturdivant was sitting in his vehicle around 4.40 a.m. December the 10th when a Chevrolet avalanche pulled up beside him. People from the avalanche ex exited, assaulted Sturdivant, and pulled him from his vehicle. Mormon Jenkins then began shooting and others rifled Sturdivant's pockets before leaving. Marquane Shaquine Smith, age 29, and Carondius Marte Kelly, age 24, both of Waterloo, were arrested earlier in the investigation. And Salvation Army tops its goal. Campaign raises $662,369 during the Christmas season. The Salvation Army of Waterloo, Cedar Falls, announced that it has surpassed its Red Kettle campaign goal, raising $662,369 through Red Kettle stands and general donations. The goal was $651,000. The Red Kettle campaign accounts for one-third of the annual budget, said Joe Kraft, office manager. It was pertinent for us to reach our goal to meet the needs of those struggling throughout the Cedar Valley. Volunteers made this season's success possible, said Katie Harn, Volunteer and Community Re Relations Coordinator. We were blessed with 409 volunteers donating 2,158 hours to our seasonal needs. Of that total, 153 volunteers braved the elements and rang red kettle bells for 1,068 hours, raising $49,242. 
We are grateful to everyone who donated to our annual fundraiser, be it financially or with their time, said Major Martin Thies, Corps Officer. Because of our community's generous support, we are equipped to continue meeting needs at the highest level. This includes serving year-round as the largest provider of emergency shelter for the general population in Northeast Iowa, crisis assistance, and our weekly food and youth programs. Donations and volunteers are needed year-round. For more information, contact HARN at area code 319-235-9358, extension 102, or Katie, K-A-T-I-E, dot Harn, H-A-R-N, at U-S-C dot Salvation Army dot org. Now it's time to turn over to the opinion page, and I'll read the letters to the editor. First, right-wing terror is written by Herman Lenz of Sumner. When our Iowa Trump-Publican legislature gets finished, will have more favored status in the laws for big trucking slash big business, police, hunters, animal, ag owners slash operators, anti-abortion zealots, religion, and places where their election funding comes from. We'll have more laws against abortion and birth control, voting rights, crash preventive speed, and red light cameras, and school teachers' rights to teach the full truth about American history. I watched the TV series About Auschwitz, the deportation and genocide of the undesirable people in Germany and other nearby countries while Hitler was in control. I didn't hear that any religious religions in Germany tried to prevent it. Instead, local police and citizens seemed to cooperate with Hitler's plan. Could the same thing happen in America if we'd get a tyrannical dictator and the conservative religious right in control? We know how they hate the pro-choice birth control people, environmentalists, minorities, LBGTQ community, vegetarians, animal rights community, and anyone opposed to Trump and his orders. If he'd tell them the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, few of his followers would have the gumption to disagree. Could Auschwitz happen again in with the right people in power? Again, that was written by Herman Lenz of Sumner. Next is a letter entitled, Democrats Have Changed. It's written by Dave Smith of Waterloo. Recently, several have noted how the two major political parties no longer share anything in common. As someone who remembers past presidential campaigns during the 1960s and 1970s, I recall a time when both parties were pro-life and did not discuss issues like abortion and homosexuality. The sanctity of marriage, defined as a union between one man and one woman, was the norm. Transgender topics were not even on the political agenda. There were also similarities in economic issues, such as Democratic President Kennedy's decision to lower taxes to boost national prosperity. What do we see now? One party embraces what that party used to oppose. The Naked Communist, a book by Cleon Skousen, warned of goals of the communist minds. Goals such as get control of the schools, dumb down the population, drive wedges between people on the basis of race, income, gender, and political affiliation, infiltrate the press, and discredit the family as an institution. In the last two presidential elections, the U.S. Communist Party has not run a candidate. They said the Democratic Party has candidates that have the same goals as the Communist Party. 
The platform positions of the Democratic Party make it easier for the government to gain complete control. This pattern has appeared in other countries before they surrendered to communism and socialism. Who else would like to see the platform planks of the Democratic Party of the past? Again, this letter was written by Dave Smith. Next, Tragedy at Border. This is written by Vernon Weems of Waterloo. Recently, three Mexican migrants, a woman and two children, all non-threatening, unarmed, and struggling to live, drowned on the Texas border while a dispute of who has authority was ongoing between the U.S. border agents and the Texas National Guard. One simple solution to prevent this from happening again with the continuing showdown between President Joseph Biden and Governor Gregory Abbott. President Biden, do your damn job and save lives with the stroke of your pen. Use your authority to issue a standing order to deputize any and all law enforcement to save anyone's life when there are, they are struggling and there is no threat to the government agent slash officer regardless of the current Biden-Abbott muscle-flexing competition. It is your job to set an example on how to be good Americans and first is to do no harm. My God teaches that all lives are precious to him. Signed, Vernon Weems of Waterloo. And finally, Hooray Gilbertville, written by Teresa Greenfield, the USDARD State Director, Iowa. The city of Gilbertville was recently awarded a $500,000 United States Department of Agriculture Rural Development Community Facilities Grant to construct a new emergency services building. The award is a key part of the Biden administration's Invest in America initiative focused on building and growing rural communities. This grant is one example of what Invest in America looks like in Black Hawk County. Congratulations, Gilbertville. Signed, Teresa Greenfield, USDA RD State Director for Iowa. You are listening to the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier on Iowa. Iris, excuse me, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other Iris program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we'll turn to today's obituaries. And first we remember Stephen Joseph Riley, age 78, of Waterloo, who died Saturday, January the 20th, at Friendship Village. A mass of Christian burial will be held at 11 a.m. Thursday, January the 25th, at St. Edward's Catholic Church, with burial at Mount Olivet Cemetery. Full military rites will be conducted at the cemetery by the Evansdale AMVETS Post 31, assisted by the Iowa Army Honor Guard. Public visitation from 3 to 7 p.m. Wednesday at Haggerty Wachoff Garup Funeral Service on West Ridgeway, where there will be a 3 p.m. rosary and 6.30 p.m. vigil service. Visitation also one hour prior to the Mass on Thursday at the church. The Mass will be live-streamed on the parish website at www.stead or maybe it's St. Ed, S-T-E-D, dot org. To quote Steve, a donation to a memorial could live a long time and the flowers will be gone in a week. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to St. Edward's Catholic Church, Cedar Valley Catholic Schools, or Cedar Valley Hospice. Online condolences may be left at www.haggertywaychoffgrarup.com. 
www.beverlygmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgmcgm
com. Now we remember Barbara J. Zumek, age 77, of Evansdale, who passed away on Friday, January the 19th, 2024, at Trillium House in Marquette, Michigan, with her daughter by her side. Funeral services, 11 a.m. Friday, January the 26th, 2024, at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Evansdale. Visitation will begin at the church at 10 a.m. until service time. Inurnment will take place at a later date in Poyner Township Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to Trillium House, 1144 Northland Drive, Marquette, Michigan, 49855. Condolences may be left at www.lockfuneralservices.com. And remember, Carmela Carm Jane Quirk, who passed away peacefully on January the 20th, 2024, at Cedar Valley Hospice Home. Up until the end, Carm maintained her love of family and friends and was fiercely proud of her Italian heritage and had an amazing zest for life. Visitation will be on Thursday, January the 25th at Haggerty Wake Off Greerup Funeral Service on 300 West Ridgeway with a rosary at 4 p.m. and vigil service at 6.30 p.m. Mass at St. Edward's Catholic Church, 1423 Kimball Avenue. Mass will be on Friday, January the 26th at 10.30 a.m. There will be no visitation at the church. The Mass will be live-streamed on the Paris website, www.sted.org. Memorials for CARM can be directed to Catholic Worker House, Columbus High School, or St. Edward's Catholic Church. Now we remember Judy Pearl Kapman, Campman, excuse me, age 81, who went home to be with her Lord January the 18th, 2024. Services will be 11 a.m. Friday, January the 26th, 2024 at Bethany Bible Chapel in Cedar Falls. The service will be live streamed at www.bethanybiblechapel.org. Visitation will be Friday, 9.30 a.m. until service time. Rather than flowers, memorials should be directed to Bethany Bible Chapel or the family for gospel artist support. For more information and full obituary, contact Dahl Van Hovey Schoof Funeral Home at www.dahlfuneralhome.com. And we remember Eldon Fred Cuker age 91, of Waverly, Iowa, who died Thursday, January the 18th, 2024, at Waverly Health Center. Visitation will be held on Tuesday, January the 23rd, at Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Waverly from 4 to 7 p.m. Funeral services will be held on Wednesday, January the 24th, at 11 a.m. at Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Waverly and will be live-streamed on Kaiser Corson's YouTube channel. Private graveside services will be at Harlington Cemetery in Waverly. Memorials may be directed to Eldon's family for later designation, and online condolences may be left at www.kaisercorson.com, or you can reach them at area code 319-352-1187. And a memorial service planned for Ralph Burr on Thursday. A memorial service for Cedar Falls resident Ralph Burr, who passed away in December, will be held at 6.30 p.m. Thursday, January 25th at the Unitarian Universalist Society, 3912 Cedar Heights Drive. 
Ralph was an active participant in two groups that will jointly host his service, the Cedar Falls Quaker Meeting and the Buddhist Path. UU Pastor Emma Peterson will preside over the service, which will incorporate elements from both Quaker and Buddhist traditions. Everyone who knew Ralph is welcome to attend. Questions can be answered using the contact form online at cedarfallsquakers.org. Now we'll move on to the sports page, and we'll start with the top story in college men's basketball entitled Record Victory. Jacobson, now all-time winningest coach in MVC. This is written by Ethan Petrick of The Courier. Ben Jacobson treated it no differently than the postgame of the previous 187. The Northern Iowa head men's basketball coach proceeded through the postgame protocol the same as he had for every win before the Panthers' 61-57 win over Southern Illinois on Saturday. Go through the handshake line, then head to the locker room to discuss the game with the team. However, this victory was not the same as the 187 before it. Saturday's win marked Jacobson's 188th Missouri Valley Conference victory as a head coach, all with UNI. Saturday's win marked a changing of the guard as Jacobson became the league's all-time winningest coach in conference play, passing Oklahoma State's Henry P. Iba, from, from, who coached from 1993. 1934 to 1970. Saturday's wins marked the breaking of the 68-year-old record. That was not the first thing I thought of, Jacobson said. What I thought about was the game. It was a heck of a ball game and going in and being able to be with the guys. But as UNI interim athletic director Bob Bowlesby strode towards half court, the moment started to set in for the Panthers head coach in his 17th season in Cedar Falls. It starts to get a little emotional, Jacobson said. This is really special, but you start to feel it at that point. This win was not the same as the 187 before it. A video featuring former UNI head coach and current Creighton coach Greg McDermott, former UNI guard Johnny Morin, and former UNI radio play-by-play voice Gary Rima, among others, played on the video board in the McLeod Center as Bowlesby presented Jacobson with a commemorative basketball. Hey, Coach, congratulations on breaking the record for most MVC conference wins, Morin said. You certainly earned it, and it shows what a great program you have built at the University of Northern Iowa. Congratulations, Coach Jacobson, on your 188th MVC win, Rima said. What a tremendous accomplishment. I cannot think of anyone that is more deserving to be the all-time leader in wins in the Missouri Valley Conference, McDermott said. You have done it with class, you have done it with integrity, and you have impacted so many people in a positive way. All of your former players, your former colleagues and staff, and me included, I am proud to call you a friend. Though the record went down in his name, Jacobson spent the remainder of the night shining the spotlight on those around him, including his present and former staff. There are some people, some really close friends, that have made this happen, Jacobson said. They knew who they are. Our program would not be what it is or be able to do the things that we do without the people I am talking about. There are people that love our guys and love our program. We would not be here, not even close to here, without them. I wish that a deal like this they could put to either our program's name or staff. I know you cannot do that. I get it. But I just wish you could. We would not be doing this without that group. 
Jacobson also highlighted the importance of his family in helping build the program at UNI. Dawn and Hunter and Tanner, they have done a lot, Jacobson said. They have been here for all the good stuff and all the stuff that has been a little bit harder. It just means a lot that Dawn and Hunter and Tanner that are part of this too. This win was not the same as the 187 before it. Not for Jacobson, not for you and I. Since the game ended, there has been two or three times where it has been pretty emotional, Jacobson said. It is that way because it means so much for me that our program is in this place. I just love what the guys have done. The thing that I think about the most is the players that came here. They come here because they believe in what you are doing. And that, by itself, was cool. Then, they really get into it. They have done some pretty remarkable things over the last 22 and a half years, so it has been cool to be a part of it. In high school basketball, nostalgic return home for Columbus's Kramer, alum brings a Naperville Central team to his old gym. This is written by Ethan Petrick. Scenes from Oppold Gym past played through Pete Kramer's mind as the Naperville Central bus made the 274-mile trip across the Mississippi and on to Waterloo. Memories of watching the legendary sailors of his youth, Kevin Coughlin, Greg Giblin, Bobby Phillips, and Freddie Franklin, to name a few, sat at the forefront. I just loved going to Friday night games at Columbus, Kramer said. I was always in the gym, even as a little kid, so I picked the right thing for me. This school will always be special to me. Columbus has had a great tradition of athletes go through, and I go got to watch a ton of them as I grew up. At the end of his 33-year coaching career with Naperville Central in the last 21 as the head coach of the Red Hawks, Kramer made his return to Oppold Gym on Saturday. Born out of a conversation with Columbus head coach Drew Robinson at the North Iowa team basketball camp two summers ago, Kramer's Red Hawks faced Kramer's alma mater, the Columbus Catholic Sailors. As he looked around the Coliseum that had played the backdrop to the epics of his youth, Kramer joked that not much had changed save for the teams on the wall. He is used to the old Big Five. The gym looks great, Kramer said. The floor looks outstanding. Nothing else has changed a whole lot. It looks good. Kramer had joined the ranks of those legendary sailor athletes as a member of the class of 1984, quarterbacking the sailors on the gridiron and earning a reputation as three-point threat. Courier sports editor Jim Sullivan dubbed Kramer a kid who lived on the perimeter to describe the sharpshooting guard who went 55 of 125 for 44% from three-point range in his career at Columbus. The son of Pat and Rita Kramer, he developed his sharpshooting from a love of the game of basketball and being in the gym. Kramer noted that former Columbus head football coach Ricky Hendricks used to tell him that if Kramer threw the football as much as he shot a basketball, he would be a hell of a quarterback. I do not think I threw the football as much as he wanted me to, Kramer said with a laugh. However, the rhythm of standing in the gym brought peace to Kramer, unlike other activities. The gym was a place to get away. I just loved the game, Kramer said. I just loved the game of basketball. I love to be in the gym by myself, shooting. It is kind of like a sanctuary. It is where I could, if I was worried about stuff, I would just go shoot for a while. That relationship did not change as Kramer transitioned into coaching because as he did, along came his children, Nick and Aiden. Four years apart, the two became just as familiar with the gym as their father. 
they were playing, and I was right there with them, Kramer said. My kids were in the locker rooms at age two running around. Kramer considers himself lucky to have had the opportunity to be the coach for both as the two came through Naperville Central before moving on to North Central College, a Division Three program in Naperville, Illinois, though he knows it was not without its difficulties. I think it was more special to me than them, Kramer said. They will never say it, but they got old. as they got older, they may be realized it was not as easy for them just because their dad was head coach. If they had to do it all over again, they would have done the same thing. They loved it. When they come home from college or out east, they want to go to the school. Hey, Dad, can we have the keys so we can go up and shoot? Pete knows his career choice was not easy for his wife, Lori, either, but she was a saint through it all. I was never home a lot of times, Kramer said. A lot of times I always took one of the kids with me, but there were times, I am sure, she was dealing with them with other things. She is my rock. She has been through it all, my ups and my downs. There is no doubt Pete Kramer picked the right thing for him. I have taught and coached a bunch of great kids, Kramer said. We have had some special teams. We made it to the Elite Eight twice. We had three Sweet 16 teams, so you remember those teams. But you also remember teams that maybe were not so successful and you had to coach that much harder. You just try to give them the best experience you can. It is more than just basketball. You want these kids to remember not what their record was, but what their experience was. And he got to finish where he started. It is really a neat way, kind of sad in a way, seeing my life go full circle, Kramer said. This is where I started, talking to my players about it too. This is where I started. This is where I grew up. We were real excited to come see what it was all about and where I came from. I have been at Naperville Central for 33 years. I am retiring. I just thought it would be kind of neat to go back and play my high school. After 33 years, two Elite Eight runs, and three trips to the Sweet 16, 2024 marks Kramer's final year as a basketball coach with Naperville Central, but it is not a goodbye to the game for the sharpshooting guard from Columbus. I think I have too much basketball still in me, Kramer said. In men's college basketball, Panthers edge Salukis in Nailbiter. Bourne leads three UNI players in double figures. It's written by Ethan Petrick of The Courier. Neither team matched its season average field goal percentage as Northern Iowa downed Southern Illinois 61-57 in a defensive battle on Saturday. The win marked UNI head coach Ben Jacobson's 188th Missouri Valley Conference win, all coming at the helm of the Panthers, which broke a 68-year-old record for all-time conference wins, passing Henry P. Iba's 187 Valley wins as head coach of Oklahoma State from 1934 to 1970. It means so much for me that our program is in this place, Jacobson said. I just love what the guys have done. It is the thing that I think about the most, the players that came here. They come here because they believe in what you are doing. Entering Saturday night, the Salukis owned the league's best scoring defense, allowing just 64.78 points per game through 18 games. Brian Mullins has done a tremendous job with this team, Jacobson said. All of his teams are physical and guard you. We know that. But this team is doing it at, I think, a higher level than what they were doing a year ago. This is a real credit to Brian and his staff and the guys playing. They guard you and get in front of you and put their chest on you. It is very physical, and they do it without fouling you. 
SIU showed off its lockdown defense early in the contest. UNI did not eclipse 10 points until just before the under-12 media timeout as a Michael Duax jumper put UNI ahead 10-6 with 11 minutes and 37 seconds to play in the first half. The Panthers shot just 39.1% from the field in the first half, going 9 of 23 from the field and 2 of 5 on three-point attempts. For the most part, the Panthers matched the Saluki's defensive effort, limiting SIU to 11 of 25 overall and 2 of 11 from beyond the arc. SIU managed to close the first half on a 6-1 run to take a 30-29 lead into the break as A.J. Ferguson and Clarence Rupert led UNI with 10 points, or excuse me, led SIU with 10 points apiece. Duax led the Panthers in the opening frame with 9 points. Jacobson said he felt the key to the first half was sophomore guard Trey Campbell's defense on SIU guard Xavier Johnson, who leads the MVC in scoring. I really liked what Trey did with Johnson in the first half, Jacobson said. He was in front of him a lot, but in order to do that, they run so much of that stuff for him in the middle of the floor. There are so many things that you have to negotiate before you get back to where you are guarding him again. Trey put together a nice first half with him. Johnson did not score in the first half, going 0 of 3 from the field despite playing all 20 minutes. Offensive continued to be at a premium in the second half. UNI and SIU traded the lead four times in the first four minutes of the second half before a 6-0 run gave the Salukis a 41-36 advantage with 15 minutes 38 seconds left to go in the contest. However, after a Scotty Iube putback dunk built the five-point SIU lead, UNI forced an SIU scoring drought, which lasted six minutes and 44 seconds and allowed UNI to take back the lead. Four different Panthers scored as an 8-0 run put UNI in front 44-41 with nine minutes and four seconds left to play. An SIU timeout following a Bowen-Born layup got the McLeod Center on its feet as the crowd of 3,926 made its presence felt. Throughout the Panther run, as Cole Henry, Titan Anderson, and Nate Heisey made tough layups through contact, the energy in the crowd built. The momentum of the home crowd hit a crescendo as Heisey picked Johnson's pocket after trimming the SIU lead to 41-40. They were amazing, Anderson said. We love our fans and that energy. It drives us and fuels us. Leading 44-41, the Panthers remained in front for the next four minutes of play until SIU's Jarrett Hensley hit a three from the left wing to take a 49-48 lead. Bourne ignited another UNI run on the next possession, firing off what appeared to be an ill-advised three-point attempt with 11 seconds left on the shot clock. However, according to Bourne, it was the exact look he wanted on the play. We ran a little play, one of our actions, Bourne said. We knew that they were going to switch and I was going to have a different defender on me. I went to beat his hip and felt him back up a little bit. Really, it was just the flow of the game. I had not gotten a good look in a while and knew that was kind of what I wanted to go to. That was the shot that opened up for me and I made it. Bourne's attempt found nylon and started an 8-0 run, which included a punctuating dunk from Heisey off a feed from Anderson. Bourne book-ended the run with a free throw to increase UNI's lead to 56-49 with 2 minutes 42 seconds remaining. 
Xavier Johnson managed to cut the UNI lead to three points, 60-57, to 57, on a pair of triples in the final 25 seconds, but the senior guard missed a potential game-tying shot with five seconds to play, allowing Bourne to seal the history-making win with the free throw on the other end. Three Panthers reached double figures in the win, with Bourne scoring a team-high 16. Heisey and Anderson managed 15 and 13, respectively. Johnson, Ferguson, and Rupert reached double figures for SIU. Rupert scored a double-double with a game-high 11 rebounds. The Panthers returned to action on Tuesday, January the 23rd, with a home matchup against Evansville. The Panthers lost to the Purple Aces on the road 91-89 in overtime earlier this season. Broadcast coverage of the game will be provided by Panther Sports Network TV, CFU Channel 15, KCRG 9.2, and the Panther Sports Radio Network. Jacobson emphasized the need for another strong home crowd to attend Tuesday's tilt. It matters, Jacobson said. It matters for the home team. You really appreciate everybody that was here. There is more room in our building. These guys are playing great basketball. Mid-November to mid-December, I would not have been able to say, hey, you need to spend your hard-earned money to watch these guys play. We were not guarding anybody. We are now. It is worth coming out and watching these guys, and it matters, and it mattered tonight. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.